Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page number 876. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we need to have our eyes opened today to see Jesus, to see what the Word of God is showing us, how we need to have our ears opened today to hear Jesus, to hear what the Word of God says to us, how we need to have our hearts opened today by you so we can receive what Jesus shows us and what he says to us. We are dependent upon you to do the saving work in us. So I pray, our Father, that you would visit us in this hour Cause your word to be heard and understood and believed. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. We used to have public hangings in our country. The last public execution in America was a hanging in Owensboro, Kentucky in 1936. Now, the reason for public hangings was not to satisfy morbid curiosity, nor was it to further humiliate the convicted person. It was done because it was thought to send a helpful warning message to people who have a tendency to commit rape and murder. And the message was, this is what happens to people who rape and murder. It was hoped that somebody hearing such a warning message would take heed to it 
and consider his ways and turn from a life headed in that direction. So, the reason for the hangings was to render justice, but the reason for public hangings was to warn people who were flouting the law not to get hanged. Now, in our passage in Luke, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are flouting the law of God. And Jesus invites them to a kind of public hanging. It's an execution of justice on lawbreakers. And Jesus shows it to them by means of a word picture. He tells them about it in a story. The intention of the story is not to make his listeners say, oh, what a horrible fate that somebody should have fall on them. I feel sorry for them. It's to make, rather, his listeners say, oh, that guy looks a lot like me. I sure don't want that to happen to me. I'm wondering if you're going to hear Jesus' word picture. I'm wondering if you're willing to ask whether that guy looks at all like you. And would you like to be clear on how it is that somebody doesn't look like that guy and doesn't end up like that guy? Would you like to have a greater clarity about how the non-flouters of the law actually live? Would you like to increase in your ability to live that way? I think Jesus' words can help you today, can help us all. Now, the theme, as I've put it on this outline in your bulletin that looks like this one, is that the law has warned us that sons of the kingdom selflessly live for eternal comfort, not temporal pleasures, through faith in Christ. Now, I invite you to look at Luke chapter 16 with me, which was already read, but there's a couple of verses that weren't read. They were preached last week. It's verses 14 to 18. I want to draw your attention to those verses because I think they are a necessary, critical on-ramp into our verses. Because there's a pattern on display concerning the Jewish leaders here in Luke's Gospel. And it's culminating in these most recent interactions. And that whole pattern that's been on display is a backdrop to this teaching. Pick it up in verse 14 and hear a couple of sentences from Jesus. It says here, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we're getting the picture here. Jesus outright indicting these Pharisees uh, of being people who choose man's ways over God's ways. They love money. That's a sure sign that they don't love God, he says. They justify themselves before men, a sure sign that they don't understand the word of God. But Jesus says, oh, but God knows your hearts and that they remain unjustified. And he says they value what is exalted among men, which the word of God tells us is detestable. That's verse 15. And we've been seeing this all along in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 14, we saw of these leaders that they prefer the praise and honor of men over God's praise. Remember, they seek 
the seats of honor for themselves, back in chapter 14. And again, they are the ones who refuse God's invitation to his banquet, told to them in a parable, because they're too busy with worldly things. We were shown that. They are the ones who are not willing to renounce everything to follow Jesus because they're very comfortable with things the way they are. We saw that in chapter 14. And in chapter 15, we saw that they are the ones who do not love the lost sheep whom the Father loves. They don't have that compassion in contrast with Jesus' disciples. In the first part of chapter 16, which was preached last week, uh, we, we see that as stewards of God's kingdom, they're stewards of God's word of the kingdom, these leaders are about to be called into account for their mismanagement. They've squandered things, but they're unwilling to take the desperate steps necessary to prepare for their future by using, as the illustration was given, the temporal things to the benefit of eternal things. And most tellingly, if you pick it up in verse 16, you'll see that they pretend to keep the word of God. Look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman divor- uh, who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So, These rulers that Jesus is indicting, they appear to value the law and the prophets. They appear to value the things which were preached all along in redemptive history, but the things which now, in this age of fulfillment, uh, since John the Baptist, uh, are being preached openly. That which was concealed in the message of the law is now laid open because the law of God has always taught Both the ethic of the kingdom, you love God with all your heart, you love your neighbors yourself, and it's always pointed to the good news of the kingdom, that God is opening his kingdom to the world through his son Jesus Christ. That the Old Testament has always warned of the coming judgment of God, and then pointed to the need for Messiah to come and save us from our sins. Uh, And so, remember back in chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching. And what did he preach? He preached, prepare the way of the Lord, that means repent, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That means the Messiah is going to come and deliver you from your sins. And Luke said, that message is good news to the people. And then Jesus took over and he preached good news to the poor, which consisted of liberty to the captives who were ensnared in their sin and the year of the Lord's favor, of receiving people to himself. In other words, he preached his salvation as the gift of God to escape the judgment of God and bring repentance from sins. And so Jesus says the shift from the law and the prophets to the preaching of John and now him doesn't mean that the law is passing away. It means that the message of the law is about to be fulfilled in Christ. And so as Jesus is indicting these guys, he's indicting them for laying aside the law that's about to be fulfilled. They've never listened to it. And that's why he says, 
now the kingdom of God is being proclaimed openly and everyone is forcing his way into it. That is a famously difficult translation, but no matter how you translate it, the indictment remains the same. Whether you say that men are pressing in vigorously, then you're saying, but the Pharisees aren't. Or your men are violently trying to seize the kingdom on their own terms. The Pharisees are. Or the kingdom is being pressed urgently upon people. The Pharisees aren't responding to it. Either way you translate it, they're not entering in. They won't be pressed in. They won't succeed in taking it on their own terms. Because they have their own self-justifying law disregarding terms. So that means, and all this is the backdrop to the simple little parable we're looking at. These guys hold to the pretense of the word of God while they reject the message contained in the word of God. Jesus says, you pretend to hold the law, but it's obvious you disregard it because you don't listen to its warning. And you don't practice its ethic. They don't listen to the law. and the pro- They're Bible thumpers with no heart understanding, who are missing the message and the point. So Jesus, he indicts them, and then he invites them to a kind of a public hanging through this story of somebody who looks a lot like them. So now I'd like you to pick it up with me in verse 19, which has already been read. Ryan's already read that to us. Understand that this parable's not simplistically about a good guy and a bad guy. It's a parable about someone who failed to be a son of the kingdom and whose life demonstrated that he was not a son of the kingdom and what his destiny was. So the text says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Just walk through the details here. Very simple. There's a rich guy. Focused. In, in a focused way, you're saying there's a comfortable guy. His clothes are purple. That's the most expensive kind of dye you can buy in that day. His clothes are linen. They're very fine. And it says he feasted sumptuously every day. And the language there is not just talking about the food per se, expensive food. It includes that. But it's indicating that he lives in a perpetual state of party and celebration. Every day was his birthday. It's food and drink and entertainment. Those were his lot. The world is his oyster. He has it all. And then on the other hand, there's a very poor man. Better, a very miserable man. This guy lies at the gate of the rich man, which implies he doesn't have a place of his own. He's homeless. It also, I think, tellingly implies that he is known to the rich man. We learn that he knows his name. And this poor man is covered with sores. So he's sick. He doesn't have any people to take care of him. He's got no resources for treatment. In fact, the dogs lick his sores. That, that's not meant to sound therapeutic, but, but pitiful. He's, he is with the lowliest and filthiest of beasts, and they won't stop pestering him. So he sits there longing to be fed with scraps from the rich man's table. He's hungry, and he can't buy food, and he's begging. 
Now, the unspoken implication, as I've hinted at, is that the miserable man lies right outside the front gate of Party Boy over here. And the rich man knows Lazarus by name. It, it should have been easy for Daddy Warbucks over here to help this guy out. At least with table scraps, come on. But he could do a lot better than that. But he's too busy having fun. He doesn't care about this poor man who is his neighbor. Then, Jesus says, both men die. What happens to them? Well, the poor man is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The King James Version says, Abraham's bosom. I like that phrase. And, and the rich man is buried and immediately finds himself in Hades. Now, this parable is not all about death and final destinations and the timing of things and eschatology and all that stuff. I'd like to just not even comment on any of that, but I know I can't because I know as soon as you read this, questions come up and you're not going to stop thinking about them. And I'm not going to be able to explain to you the simple meaning of this parable if we don't set some of those aside. So Jesus is not instructing us in all the doctrines of death and eschatology. It's a warning to people to enter the kingdom and what happens when you don't listen. Um, But... From the implications of this parable and from other teaching in the New Testament, we can piece together the following facts concerning the place of the dead. I hope you'll be content with those. I will touch on them quickly. We can learn from this and the rest of the New Testament that death is not unconsciousness. It is a conscious existence. We can learn that the eternal destiny... Of the wicked, that's those who are not God's people through Jesus Christ. Their destiny is to be raised bodily from the grave, to be judged, to be convicted by God, and to be cast into torment in the lake of fire, a conscious and permanent punishment. We can learn that the eternal destiny of the righteous, those who are God's people through Jesus Christ, is to be raised from the grave, transformed, given a new heavenly body, whatever that's like, to be judged and vindicated by God, and ushered into a sin-free and pain-free life of joy in the personal presence of the Lord. And we also can learn that the temporary state of everybody who dies until those final things happen, is to go to a place that's not their final destination, but it is commensurate with their final destination. And there they wait for the resurrection and the judgment and the final destiny, either the new Jerusalem, the new creation, or the lake of fire, like we've said. So, the righteous dead, the righteous dead, go at once to a place of comfort where they're already present with the Lord, waiting the resurrection. In our parable, that place is called the bosom of Abraham. And then the wicked dead, they go at once to a place of torment where they are already in fiery agony. In our parable, that place is called Hades. And we learn from our parable that there's no travel between these two destinations. 
not between the two temporary destinations and certainly not between the permanent ones, which means there's no possible second chance once you've died. At death, that destiny is settled, e even while there's more to unfold before we get to the final end. Now, all that is what we understand the teaching of the Bible to be in summary about death and dying. But those details are not Jesus' point here. So I want to set them aside. I hope that scratched enough of the itch that we can just listen to something that's actually easier than a lot of that. Hard to hear, but easy to understand. Now, all that is borne out by the parable. It's consistent with it. Here's the rich man. The text says he is in torment with flames. Just consider this guy is so miserable that he would consider a drop of water on a dirty man's finger touching his tongue to be a welcome relief. I mean, that's miserable. So now the rich man is really poor. But the poor man, well, he's in blessed comfort. He's with Abraham, which means he is the friend of God. He's in possession of all that God promised Abraham. He has inherited all the glorious riches which were promised by God. Now the poor man is rich. So, the, the text says that in torment, the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus. He cries out to Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham. Any good Israelite would consider himself a son of Abraham. He thinks Abraham's still going to help him out. But he is mistaken. He's not really a son of Abraham at all. So what happens? Well, Abraham schools this rich man. Abraham tells him to remember that he had a life filled with good things in the world. While Lazarus had a life filled with bad things. But in the kingdom of God, things are reversed. The worldly man he gets all the good he's ever going to get in this life. But the son of the kingdom, the true child of Abraham, he gets his good in the life to come. The comforts of this life were all the one man got, while the eternal comfort of heaven was what the other man got. And what's more... Now there's nothing that Lazarus can do to help the rich man. These things are settled. There's no interchange possible. So what happens? You heard the text as Ryan read it. The rich man then considers, I've got brothers. Oh, no. I've got five brothers. And so he calls out. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus. He can't get over Lazarus. doesn't work for him. Send Lazarus to warn my brothers to repent. Now, you just got to slow down and hear what that has to mean. This means that he now sees that he himself ought to have repented from his sins. His sins evidenced by his lack of concern for the poor covenant neighbor at his doorstep. 
you see? He now sees that if his brothers continue living the way he himself lived, they will end up missing the entrance to the kingdom too. So, he calls out for Abraham to do something about this. Send Lazarus to warn him. Well, Abraham schools him again. He says, and I would say Jesus schools the Pharisees through these words. He says to them, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now that's supposed to sink in on the Pharisees. The meaning is that all the warning you ever needed was in the scriptures that you knew, but you never listened. And the rich man, he counters. He says, no, no, if only somebody came back from the dead to warn them, then they'd listen. And Abraham drives it home. Jesus drives it home. He says, no. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that's meant to be a pregnant phrase. If someone should rise from the dead. Nobody in that moment really knew what that was hinting at. But all the readers of Luke's gospel knew what it meant. And all of us on this side of that redemptive event know it too. Jesus Christ was going to the cross. He was preaching the kingdom as he went to the cross. And he was going to the grave. And he was going to rise again from the dead. And even though Jesus comes back from the dead, there are going to remain multitudes who will not listen and will not heed the warning to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said, I know that. If they won't listen to Moses, they won't listen to me. Because I'm saying what Moses said. Moses was talking about me the whole time. Now, this is the lesson of the parable at its core. The Word of God warns everybody that God's salvation is breaking in. His kingdom is breaking in. And there's coming a day of judgment. All the ethical teaching of the law of God is given to explain what righteousness looks like. It gives a picture of how a righteous man would live. And all the while, it screams at you that you don't live that way. The summary of that ethic of all the scriptures is that you would love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. The effect of that ethic being preached and pressed is to point out what sin is and to emphasize how difficult 
really impossible it is for a sinner to draw near to a holy God. Sinners can never hope to draw near to a holy God unassisted. Sinners can never hope to cleanse themselves from defilement. They can never undo the sin that's been done. They can't even stop repeating the sinful ways that they live. Sinners in this world are facing God's wrath and judgment and are helpless before him. Sinners are without hope unless that hope comes from God. The law of God, Moses and the prophets, drive us to see our need for a Savior. They contain the promise of God that he will send such a Savior. God's promise of salvation is packaged in the law. It's carried forward in those commandments that drive sinners to despair in order that they might seize at last what God offers by faith alone. The law was always our tutor to lead us to Christ, and Christ was always the righteousness on display in the law. So the law of God points us toward the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The law of God points us to the Passover Lamb by whose sprinkled blood our sins are passed over and we're spared from God's judgment. The law and the prophets reveal to us the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who bore the sins of many, the scapegoat for our sins, the one whom it pleased the Father to crush so that by his stripes we are healed. He is the one lifted up in the wilderness so that all who look on him in faith are saved from death. All this Moses and the prophets were saying if anybody was listening. And what's more, when Christ is laid hold of by faith and his gift of salvation is received by faith, the ethic of the kingdom of God starts to be displayed in that believer. See, the lives of the Pharisees reveal that they did not have faith in Christ. And the life of every believer in Christ will reveal that he is a son of the kingdom. The kingdom ethic of love characterizes Christ's followers. Because contrary to the lives of the Pharisees, the followers of Christ love God above this world. They are willing to renounce everything and hate their own lives in favor of having Jesus. Thus, they display that they belong to the coming kingdom of God. And contrary to the lives of the Pharisees, the followers of Christ love God's ways above man's ways. They're eager to live holy lives in conformity to God's revealed morality, seeing his law fulfilled in them as they obey They obey the Father. Thus, they display that they belong to the coming kingdom of God. And contrary to the lives of the Pharisees, the followers of Christ love their neighbors above themselves. They're eager to use their money and their possessions for the sake of their brothers, to alleviate their suffering, and to invest in eternity. Thus, they display that they belong to the coming kingdom of God. You see, everybody who heeds the warning of the scriptures and runs to Christ for redemption finds his life marked by this kingdom ethic of love. And so everybody who lacks this kingdom marker is sadly identified 
as someone who's not listening to God. Just like the Pharisees. They're going to wind up like this rich man in the parable. So I wonder about you. Are you listening? You see the fate of the rich man. Are you able to say, that looks like me? Are you able to say, thank God, that doesn't look like me? How do we live out this lesson of the parable? It isn't a complicated lesson. It would feel inappropriate, even ridiculous to me, for me to stand up here and relate to you as an historical and academic matter how Jesus Christ went about preaching the kingdom of God and urging men and women to be ready to enter it by faith, to repent from their sins and come to him, and then for me to fail to do the same thing with you. The kingdom of God is coming. It has already broken in with the arrival of Christ, and it is coming in all of its fullness. His kingdom brings to all humankind a great day of reckoning and judgment. Whether you die first, or Jesus comes again before you die, the outcome is exactly the same. You must stand before God and give an account You must give an account of the life you live here. And there will be a judgment of fire and terrifying torment for every human being who has failed to measure up to the righteousness of God. Every person who has failed to love God with all his heart And to love his neighbor as himself will be weighed in the scales and found wanting. The fate of this rich man in the parable will be the fate of every soul of man who falls in that judgment when it comes. On that day, nobody's going to be awarded points for trying hard to be good. Nobody's going to be graded on a curve that day. Because so many people were so much worse. That's not going to matter. Nobody's going to have a legal leg to stand on in that courtroom. The judge is just going to look over the bench and say, guilty. He's going to pronounce guilty on every person who fails to meet the standard of perfection that's held out in the law of God. Moses and the prophets. And it won't just be the richest people who trampled the poor underfoot who get judged. It will be all the selfish people. Do you understand? It'll be all the worldly people. Do you see? It'll be all the people who disregard the word of God. Can you grasp that? It'll be all the people, dear ones, who have loved themselves. If you're outside of Christ today, it's going to be you. Something doesn't change. It's going to be you. It's going to be you. You're going to join this rich man in his torment. You're going to long for somebody to quench the flames and nobody will. Nobody can. 
But in this day, in this hour, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. That's what Jesus said. Jesus Christ calls sinners to himself today. Christ invites sinners to the banquet in his kingdom today. He's calling people of every kind. The Jew, the Gentile, the poor, the lame, the blind, the helpless. Even the rich who have their eyes opened. He's offering the gift of life to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make a way for sinners to come to God. To come into the kingdom of God. To experience life instead of death. Jesus died to pay for the sins of everyone who believes. He lived a sinless life before God on behalf of everyone who believes. He rendered to God the perfect righteous obedience that God requires. That God is due. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And on that basis, he offers the forgiveness of sins. The question is, do you want that? I'm here to tell you that you need it. I pray that by the grace of God today, you come at last to see that you need it. And also to want it. And by faith to have it. This package of unspeakable gifts is yours today by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. I'm saying to you, unbelievably, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So I call on you to believe and to receive The gift of the kingdom of God, life forever, with God in paradise. Now what shall the rest of us, who have already come to Christ by faith, who have received this gift, what do we do to make use of the lesson of this parable? And I would say we ought to be diligent to display the kingdom ethic. In this world. Because what I proclaim to you as the outcome of faith in Christ. Becomes for you your duty in Christ. You understand that right? You have a duty in Christ. And the apostle Peter tells us to make every effort. and Practice these things. Describing how believers are supposed to live for Jesus. Living as kingdom citizens means laboring to display more and more that change of life. In your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. So let's be clear what the kingdom ethic is. It isn't complicated. It's love. We tried to tease it out. It's love for God above this world. It's love for God's ways above man's ways. It's love for your neighbor above yourself. So I think it's fair for you to ask yourself how you are representing that love, that ethic that marks you as somebody belonging to the kingdom of God. What is there about your lifestyle that signals to anybody that you love God above this world? Love God above this world. That's going to go right to your priorities and your resources, isn't it? If you love God more than this world, 
then you will prefer the things of God over the things of this world. You will love drawing near to God more than you love personal comfort. You will love promoting the things of God above enjoying your worldly pleasures. And that will include spending your money on them. You'll find your mind set on the things above. And not relentlessly preoccupied with the things of this world. That's not a hard, a hard test to put your life down against. Where's your mind set? Where do your affections lie? And by the way, who could tell? You ought to ask yourself those things. If you love God's ways above man's ways, then you'll be mindful of who it is you're listening to for guidance. Are you ordering your life according to a careful understanding of the word of God? Or are you simply compartmentalizing all that spiritual stuff to leave lots of room for the experts of the world to guide you in most practical things? Are you letting the word of God that's taught and explained to you guide you in deciding how you do things? Is your parenting strategy shaped by your pediatrician or your school counselor instead of your Bible as it's taught to you? Is your Financial strategy coming from somebody urging you to build wealth for later in life comfort? Or influenced by somebody from a kingdom-minded perspective, coaching you to manage your responsibilities wisely, but invest for eternity? Those aren't the same thing. Be diligent to love God's ways as warned by the law and the prophets, as taught by Jesus. And I would say this. Maybe it's subtle, but I hope you can get it. Be careful with your expectations of comfort. You know, there are several ways of almost learning the lesson of this parable and then coming up short of a really good application in Christ. And those ways have to do with how you look at the rich man and how you look at poor Lazarus and how you draw conclusions from them. Because on the one hand, you might look at the parable and conclude that God favors the poor over the rich. It kind of seems that way, doesn't it? And that might lead you to conclude that what God wants from his people in this world is to fight the evil of poverty. But I'm telling you that poverty is not the evil of on display, and in this parable. And fighting poverty is not the moral of the story. The evil on display is selfish worldliness as over against kingdom-mindedness. God doesn't show favoritism to any group of people because of anything intrinsic to them. God doesn't favor poor people over rich people. The reality of this kind of language in the Bible is not that God favors poor people, but that the people whom God favors, namely those who have faith in Christ, tend by and large to be the poor. That's not saying the same thing. God favors faith in Christ. Those with faith in Christ are often the poor. 
That means, of course, for us that the offer of Christ is extended to the poor without us being respecters of persons either. We should not be neglectful about preaching the gospel to the poor and the outcast and the marginalized and the downtrodden and the undesirables. All the while helping them to understand that everybody before God is a poor, downcast, downtrodden, miserable beggar who needs grace to be forgiven. They're all candidates for the gospel. But catch this, it also means that those with faith in Christ actually have a reasonable expectation of poverty in this world, of suffering in this world, not of prosperity and comfort. Faith in Christ will not necessarily alleviate poverty in suffering in this world for us as it did not for Lazarus. Indeed, faith in Christ may well lead to the impoverishment or disadvantage of sons of the kingdom here and now. You shouldn't neglect the words of Jesus as he spelled out the ethic and the expectation of the kingdom of God in the beginning of his ministry. And we read some of them as a call to worship. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers did to the prophets. That has to mean that Christians need to be careful about our expectations of comfort. I believe confusion on this point has led many to ruin as they grow disillusioned with how in their minds God has let them down and let them suffer and let them be disadvantaged and let them be poor and let things go so very wrong when they expected to be happy in Jesus. Of course there's happiness in Jesus. There is the shared wealth of the body of Christ. There's joyful fellowship amid a world of hatred. There's compassion amid a world that doesn't care. There's camaraderie in the face of hostility. But we must realistically listen to Jesus. The comfort of the kingdom is largely later. We live for the eternal comfort of the kingdom. The likes of this rich man in the parable, they get all they're ever going to get. And we in Christ are going to get so much more than that. So much more than that. Just not today. We ought to long for heaven and the consummated kingdom of God because it signals an end to our suffering. That's the paradigm. There's no way around it. If we approach faith in Christ with an expectation that this means everything in our life just got upgraded from coach to first class then we're going to be in for a rude awakening. We can be committed to lessening the suffering and poverty of our brothers and sisters without holding on to any false expectations of comfort and ease for ourselves. So I say be careful about your creeping expectations of comfort in this life. Be ready to be Lazarus and to look toward Abraham's bosom, as it were. So, my brothers and sisters, the kingdom message of Jesus 
is good news. Already his kingdom has broken in for us and we are blessed to be the followers of Christ who love him with abandon. May the Lord give us the grace to keep selflessly living for God's eternal comfort, putting all our hope in Christ and all our effort into his kingdom. For Jesus' sake, let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this word from Jesus. Thank you for this warning from our Lord. Give us grace to be true sons of the kingdom in Christ by faith alone. Give us grace to see our lives marked by the kingdom ethic. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.